friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We have a great show lined up for you this week, as we do every week. At the bottom of the hour, my co-host and TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson, will be joining me. We'll be talking to Dr. Matthew Meehan, who offers us a look at Hillsdale's 1776 curriculum. It may just be a wonderful antidote to the problems of civic education in our earlier grades, K-12, through as uh, CRT, or critical race theory, invades um, you know the schools all across our country as so many parents including me are experiencing he'll also be telling us about his new children's book called the handsome little signet i think you'll really enjoy hearing about that first we are very happy to have my tca colleague ashley mcguire with me to welcome archbishop salvatore cordiglione he is the shepherd of san francisco and this week he has penned two op-eds one about our challenge, our duty, sorry, to challenge Catholic politicians who support abortion rights. Um, and there he is very brave, uh, going out on a limb, as it were, because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a concept that's very fraught, but he's going to explain it to us um, and how important it is as Catholics to really um, get behind the idea that politicians, Catholic politicians, are not exempt from you know, the most basic tenets of our faith. And he also has written an op-ed alongside Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles uh, about San Junipero Serra. He's, a Calif- he's our first uh, Hispanic saint of the New World. And the way that California, the state of California, is slandering this amazing priest who founded the, the Franciscan missions which evangelized the West Coast. Welcome to the show, Archbishop Cordelion. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's very kind of you to share your very valuable time with us. There are a couple things we wanted to talk to you about. One of them is an op-ed that you recently published in the Washington Post, where you pushed back against recent statements made by Catholic politicians who have denounced uh, a new state law in Texas that prohibits abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. Why is a very powerful piece that you wrote, and, and it's I know it speaks to the hearts of many Catholics who are watching in disbelief as politicians who who tout their Catholic faith, who talk about how important their faith is to them, at the same time are very confident in attacking a beautiful piece of legislation like the one in Texas that protects babies. What drove you to write this very powerful piece? I've been very concerned about the growing rhetoric around abortion and the failure of so many people to recognize just how evil it is. And whenever there's any sort of even reasonable, minimal kind of regulation that there's this vehement reaction and they keep getting more and more radical. Now we see it happening again with the Texas heartbeat law. How can anyone find it unreasonable that if 
a human being has a heartbeat to consider the human being alive. Uh, that's the, the sign of death right at the end of life. There's mm-hmm. no heartbeat. And so we see this radical pushback to codifying it in the law. And, and now, even before the heartbeat bill, uh, excluding the Hyde Amendment from the budget appropriations. So I think the problem is people not recognizing truly how evil abortion is, even though the protagonists know that they're wrong. It's so clear that they know that they're wrong because they will not answer a simple, straightforward question about life in the world. They'll change the topic or they just won't reply. So that already indicates that they know their position is indefensible. So to highlight uh, how are we as faith leaders supposed to respond to this, I used the example of an evil we can all easily agree on now, but at one time was not agreed upon. And I'm old enough to remember uh, what uh, the civil rights movement and the pre-civil rights health, there was disagreement about it. And Archbishop Rummel was a very uh, courageous uh, pioneer in, in pushing for civil rights against the resistance of some powerful people, including classic Catholics in the society there. And he was accused of the same things that we hear people say nowadays about bishops are meddling in, in politics and we should stay in our own lane and, and all this. And I wanted to show that he went so far as to excommunicate those three prominent Catholics to show that penal sanctions are not like a relic of sort of a medieval church or something like that, but uh, they're a tool to be used to help bring about the conversion of the erring Catholic and, and repair scandal. So I wanted to make that very clear on an issue that now everyone agrees upon, but didn't back then. Archbishop, oh. that example that you gave was so powerful, and I learned a lot about that time in the church and just the extraordinary measures that Archbishop Rummel did to desegregate his diocese. And it was such a good reminder of how often the church truly is at the forefront of these important civil rights battles. That example and and this example of um, what's happening with the debate over the Texas law has led people to use this phrase they call weaponizing the Eucharist. Can you speak to that? Is is that something that the church is doing? Is that a fair categorization? Who's really weaponizing the Eucharist when we have politicians who are claiming to be devout Catholics and going to communion, but they're Define, it's not just a matter of defining church teaching, it's defining a fundamental human right. So that's really weaponizing it. Now, that's why I gave the example of Archbishop Rummel. No one, people then would have seen it that way. No one now accuses him of having weaponized the Eucharist when he issued those excommunications. And you know, Pope Francis recently issued a revised book, Six of the Code of Canon Law, is a section that has to do with penal law, and he revised it to make it more, more usable, easily ac- applicable, and stronger. And in the letter with which he promulgated it, he speaks about the need to apply uh, disciplinary sanctions. And he even says there was great danger, uh, great damage done in the past by a failure to appreciate this close relationship between the exercise of charity and recourse when necessary to disciplinary sanctions. And he goes so far as to say negligence on the part of a bishop in resorting to the penal system is a sign that he has failed to carry out his duties honestly and faithfully. So the whole point of this, and he, he, he lays out the three aims of no sanctions, the restoration of the demands of justice, the correction of the guilty party, and repair of scandals. So nobody accuses Rummel of having weaponized or, or politicizing the issue. Just mean, uh, and, you know, civil rights movement was led by, by faith leaders. 
And, and that, that's what he was doing. Your Excellency, isn't it true that when a politician is corrected by his bishop, when it happens rarely, but it happens, isn't that bishop, isn't he helping the politician to understand his or her participation in a moral evil, which has grave consequences for that own person's soul? It's not just about how the politician is affecting other souls and, and other people and leading them to sin through scandal, but also saving the politician from that weight of that terrible moral evil that he carries. Precisely. That's what, uh, again, these three aims. One of them, uh, Pope Francis says, the correction, correction of the guilty party. It's to move the Aaron cap, they are in a very dangerous spiritual situation. And this, this is not uh, conducive to their eternal salvation. We want to bring them to conversion and to uh, being in a spiritually whole whole place and in the right place before God. So that, that certainly is a, a primary consideration. But, uh, along with the other two. We care of scandal. This causes great scandal when people prominent in public life defy the, any kind of church teaching, let alone something that has to do with basic human rights. The third, and so repairing scandal, and then the demands of justice here. We have a whole segment of our of our population that's not even being accorded the right to life. Again, if we look back to the pre-civil rights South, I mean, we shudder in horror. We can't believe it happened that lynchings were carried out. And although it wasn't technically legal, it was condoned and people did it with impunity and uh, and it was you know, a wink and a nod uh, this is horrendous, and yet now we have that abortion is, is on the same level, they both involve killing innocent human life and here we have politicians not only winking and nodding and condoning they want to make sure it's legal all throughout pregnancy it's widely and easily accessible and now to get the government to pay for it Archbishop, you write in your piece so eloquently, you say, you cannot be a good Catholic and support expanding a government-approved right to kill innocent human beings. The answer to crisis pregnancies is not violence, but love for both mother and child. And I so appreciated this point because as all of us who are pro-life advocates know, we're constantly accused of not caring about uh, mothers and of being pro-birth, things like that. You talk a little bit about this in your piece, but you shed light on the truth about this, that the bill does earmark money. And, and no doubt, you know, in your own diocese, you see an incredible amount of time and money and volunteer efforts that go into truly giving women an empowered choice and helping them both to thrive. That's their typical empty rhetoric that's not based in reality. The ones that are really giving women choice, alternatives to abortion, are, are people of faith. They're the ones running these life crisis pregnancy clinics. And that's why I'm so happy with what Texas did in channeling all that money into their alternatives to abortion uh, program. That's exactly what we have to be doing. Again, surrounding the woman with love and support. And uh, it's people of faith who are doing that. Those people who claim to be pro-women should be applauding Texas for doing this. They're giving women real choice, real support for, for making a happy choice, a choice for life. And who are the ones who help women who have gone through that terrible experience to come to healing? Uh, she's not even, so often, not even allowed to talk about it. She would be shut down just to, and so that pain eats away at her. It's people of faith that are helping to bring her to a place of healing. So to be truly pro-life is being pro-woman. Do you hope, uh, Your Excellency, that, that some of these Catholic politicians read your piece and are inspired to rethink their support of abortion? I would hope so. It's going to take more than one event, more than one effort. We have to just continue to mount a campaign and build on momentum. The civil rights movement didn't succeed because of the excommunication that Archbishop Rummel uh, imposed, but he was 
was riding a wave of momentum. Society was shifting in that direction. And I think this is what the pro-abortion people see. They see there's a shift in momentum going more toward the pro-life side, which is why they're getting more and more uh, radical. So we need to keep building up that momentum uh, so people will get the message just how evil it is. But there are other there are alternatives for women. Uh, you know, they say they're for choice, but it's really only women of means that have the option to give birth and, and raise the child. Uh, women who are poorer, even middle class, working class women, they don't have those resources that more well-to-do women do. Again, to be truly pro-woman is to provide her with these resources so she can make a happy choice. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, with Ashley McGuire from the Catholic Association, and we're talking to Archbishop Cordelion of San Francisco. Now, Your Excellency, you wrote a wonderful piece this past weekend on a totally different subject. You wrote it with Archbishop Gomez of Los Angeles, and it's about one of my favorite saints, San Junipero Serra, and you and Archbishop Gomez pointed out that the the way that the California legislature is calling San Junipero Serra basically a genocidal maniac (laughs) is a horrible thing and it's an injustice to all the people of California and indeed the United States, especially Hispanics like me, who revere him as as a saint who represents uh, so much of our past and our our encounter with this new world, whether we carry in our blood the the indigenous uh, races and the Spanish. Why did you feel driven to write this piece and what do you hope comes of it? First of all, it's uh, personal for me and one, it's, it's the print, there's principle involved but it's, it's fueled more by that personal connection I feel to him. I grew up just a little over three miles away from the first mission he established in San Diego so I've always felt felt the closeness to him. He was like, sort of like a neighbor of mine, you know, when mm-hmm. I was growing up and the more I learn about him, the more I'm so inspired by him, all the great sacrifices he made to defend the indigenous people here and to care for them. Again, this rhetoric of the legislature is not based in reality. Now, there were hardship, you know, there was a lot of the indigenous people died because of disease that the Spaniards brought, that's true, but there wasn't an intentional genocide against them during the mission period. That happened when California went into the American period, when it, early on when it was a territory and then a state. There were governors who funded militia to go after Indians and, and kill them. And they, there was a bounty on the head of an Indian. So uh, there's an ignorance of what uh, California perpetrated later on in its history. And there were, yeah, of course, bad things that happened uh, when the Spaniards were there, but the Franciscans were there to defend the people, educate them, evangelize them, and uh, help them become equal citizens to the Spaniards who came. And the whole idea of the mission system was to teach them how to how to farm, how to domesticate animals, uh, how to be, you know, good Catholics and equal Catholic, Spanish citizens, and then hand the territory over to them for self-governance. But when the uh, California went into the Mexican period and the uh, Mexican government secularized the missions, that whole vision fell apart. I, I like to point out of uh, the physical reminder, people can try to rewrite history. You can't rewrite buildings. We have a physical reminder of what the Franciscans did to protect the, the Indians because there were 21 missions, right? Four of them had uh, were military centers, so there was a presidio attached to the mission. The presidio was the barracks for the soldiers. So uh, the wherever you see that in San Diego, in Santa Barbara, Monterey, San Francisco, 
the Presidio is miles away because they figured out early on they had to get the Indians away from the soldiers because the soldiers were, were mm. abusing them. So the mission and the church and the friary, one place, the Presidio was miles away. So it's, uh, I'd like to point out the physical reminder we have of what the Franciscans did to try to protect the indigenous population. Your Excellency, you actually performed exorcisms at the, the places where the statues have been vandalized. Is this something that the church has done when things like this have happened, or was this something new that you personally felt called to do because of your deep ties and, and personal reverence for for the man and the legacy, and, and as you say, the, the physical uh, reminder of that legacy? Well, this was a minor exorcism from Saint uh, from Pope Leo the Thirteenth. So the prayers have been around for a long time, and the idea of using those prayers um, where evil makes itself present has been around. I I said when I saw the first the first statue they uh, just uh, defamed in San Francisco, the one in Golden Gate Park. When I saw the scene, I knew I felt powerfully the evil that was present there. All when I saw the statue go down and people cheering, you know, and gleefully, you know, I just it was just so evil to me. I, I knew I had to do something. So that uh, that inspiration came to me to do those that minor exorcism. We prayed the rosary, did those prayers. It's kind of like an extended Saint Michael the Archangel prayer, hopefully, and uh, blessed it with holy water. Blessed the ground with holy water. We needed to purify that out of the evil that made itself present there. And then I had to do it again at Mission San Rafael, which is in Marin County, just to the north of San Francisco, also in our archdiocese, where they actually went on to the parish grounds to deface and topple the statue of St. Louis and Brasera. These attacks against San Junipero, whether they are attacks against his statue or attacks against his memory in the, in the legislature with this act um, defaming him, what is at the bottom of this, do you think, Your Excellency? Is it, a, is it anti-Catholicism? Is it an effort at, at erasing our past and our traditions and replacing it with something more <laughs> radical and progressive? It's all of that. All of that? It's all of that. Cancel culture is essentially canceling out Western civilization and replacing it with something different. That's why you see this thing about changing names. So it's about canceling out, and well, the church built Western civilization, so it's a way of canceling out the church. The church is, we, we have to be strong and hold to the faith because we're the only check on society going off the rails here and becoming very unjust and oppressive. So we have to be the voice of conscience. That means each of us has, have to live our own faith with integrity, right? If we, we can't be the conscience of the society if we ourselves are compromised. So it's a first and foremost a call to us for our own personal ongoing conversion. But it, it is essentially about uh, wiping, yeah, wiping out the church and Western civilization to, to replace it with a new very secular and, and harmful idea. Now, some of these attacks, maybe all of them, are made in the name, uh, ostensibly, of, of unity and, and racial, racial harmony and uh, supporting the oppressed, in this case, the indigenous people. But my experience of this has been uh, exactly the opposite, that it creates disunity and mistrust and a lack of, you know, one as a Hispanic feels unloved when one's a saint is being desecrated. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's, for us, it's sacrilegious. There's, there's no sensitivity to regard for others or what they hold sacred or, or sense of unity. One gets the impression that their idea of unity is uh, everyone agrees with us and then we'll be one. 
those who disagree have to be banished. Mm -hmm. They seem that rather than understandably we're going to have differences of opinion, but uh, there's if we can sit down and honestly dialogue, that means you're open to try to understand the other, what the other's values are, how the other, even if you're not going to agree, uh, you, you at least try to understand. That's what I don't see happening in our society anymore, and that's what really worries me. Your Excellency, my understanding is that the bill is now awaiting signature from the governor, who himself, uh, I understand, to be a self-professed Catholic. Is there any hope he he won't sign it? And what can Catholics do in these final hours to have their voices heard so that he's not, so that Unipero Serra is not canceled, as you say? <laughs> Uh, make their voices heard, flood his office with phone calls, emails, letters, have public manifestations in support of Father Sarah. And uh, he was such a virtuous man. He, he made such tremendous sacrifices to defend the Indians, far more than people today would be inclined to do. So they need to make their voices heard in those ways. And, of course, to pray for that. Well, thank you so much, Archbishop. Thank you for for your time, but thank you very much for writing these two pieces in the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and reminding us of, of what's important as Catholics. You're welcome. Really, Ashley, those were two fabulous pieces that the Archbishop wrote, one of them with Archbishop Gomez, another hard hitter at the United States Council of Bishops. I feel that it's really wonderful when I open a newspaper like the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal and I see a prelate of our church standing up for what's important to us and really what's important for civilization. Yeah, you know, I've always been a fangirl of Archbishop Cordelione, but these last two pieces, I'm just in awe of him. He, I especially, I mean, I loved the piece in the Wall Street Journal, but I especially loved the piece in the Washington Post. I felt... Which is I, which one? I, Remind me. That's the one of the... This was the piece about the duty and the obligation of Catholic leaders to stand up mm -hmm. to moral evil. As a writer, I loved the way he wrote it. It was so clear. And as a writer, I know how hard it is sometimes to A, write with clarity like that and in a way that's persuasive. And then he still has, it's a strong piece, but it's also, it's not a harsh piece. Mm -hmm. And I just think striking that balance is really an incredible act. And I just am so appreciative of uh, his leadership on that issue and other issues. And he's really just an extraordinary pastor. You know, he's really absolutely correct. We have to draw parallels between the civil rights abuse that is abortion with other prior civil rights abuses of our country. I mean, we are living in a time where millions of children are being killed legally. And this is all being done to further sexual liberation of adults. So it's a kind of <laughs> it's a kind of horrible eating of our own children that we have in in many ways just simply accepted as as part of our normal society the same way that good catholics good christians good people of any faith accepted slavery accepted the segregated south accepted jim crow laws how it's very it's very easy to live in a world look around and say well this is just the way things are it takes real courage and real strength to stand up and say no this doesn't have to be the way things are we can be better. Yeah, and I like the way he said, thankfully, Archbishop Rummel didn't, quote, stay in his lane, because I think that's a kind of bigoted way that pro-choicers try to approach the issue. They're like, oh, just stay in your box, your religious box, stay in the wall, the four walls of your church, that's where your religion belongs, when in fact, A, that's not true, and B, it's the opposite that 
people of faith are called to be very engaged members of society in pursuit of the common good and thank God for the example and the work of so many faith leaders. I mean, we you look at Martin Luther King Jr., and he himself was a, a pastor and a man of faith. And so thank goodness for all of the many courageous faith leaders who didn't stay in their lane and have done, you know, important things to advance morality in society. And as he put it, I mean, we really, it does really feel like the church is the last bastion right now. And that it's not just on this, on so many other issues, gender ideology, the family, um, religious liberty. It's like we're all that's left and we just, there isn't an option to, to quote, stay in our lane or in our box. Um, you know, society can't afford it. And, and if you think about it later on, when, when we finally as a culture realize uh, that this culture of death, you know, how unjust it has been, how much suffering it's caused, how, how wrong we've been from beginning to end, we're going to, people, are, are, our descendants are going to look back and say, well, why didn't the church fight harder? You know, why? Because uh, we've done this over and over again. When you look back at abuses of the past, we say, well, why didn't the church fight harder against this abuse or that problem? Or, you know, so, but then when the church fights back, then people complain and they say, stay in your lane. Um, don't uh, politicize the Eucharist. And it's like what they're doing with Unipara Sarah. It's like, you know, he was evangelizing a culture he was advocating for them you know i believe they point this out in the article he traveled 2000 miles to present a bill of human rights for those people and now he's being canceled so it's sort of a, a thankless task because you're you know you're not thanked in your time and then you know later you didn't do enough or you didn't do it right but the reality is and this is you know why i appreciate the point that he makes in his washington post piece it's just our duty it's what we have to do and we just have to do it mm -hmm. yeah and you know the San Junipero I find very uh, shocking that they that they make him out to be such a monster because and they do it again in the they, they say that they're doing it because of racial sensitivities <clears throat> but it's extremely racially insensitive <laughs> from a Hispanic right. perspective to demonize our nation's first Hispanic saint you know someone right. that we believe in as, as Hispanic Catholics you know many many millions of us say San Junipero understand and the San Junipero was a man of God of great tenderness for everyone he met, for the most vulnerable, the most marginalized, which at that time were the, were the native peoples of California. Right, and it's like what happened with the Mother Cabrini. There was some attempt to remove a statue or something. I don't remember exactly what it was in New York. Something similar and the Italian Americans pushed back and they were like, sorry, but this is racially offensive to, you know, this is this offends our, our culture and our heritage. You know, she's somebody who's very esteemed and loved in that community and so here's hoping and praying that Catholics and especially Hispanic Catholics push back on this totally elitist and ridiculous attempt to obliterate the true legacy of St. Unipero Serrat. Well thank you Ashley for joining me in this segment of uh, Conversations with Consequences and, and for talking to the wonderful Archbishop Cordelion who really has so much to say to us Catholics about how to meet all these all these present difficulties of the moment. Thank you, Gracie.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my co-hostess and TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson, as we welcome Dr. Matthew Meehan to the show. Dr. Matthew Meehan is the Director of Academic Programs for the Washington, D.C. campus of Hillsdale College. He also happens to write beloved children's books, including his latest, The Handsome Little Signet, a beautifully redeeming take on the ugly duckling. Welcome to the show, Dr. Meehan. Thanks for having me. Dr. Mian, we definitely want to discuss your your beautiful children's book, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But before that, we want to talk to you about Hillsdale College's 1776 curriculum. Me, personally, I'm someone who's had several run-ins uh, with, the, with the critical race theory invading classrooms, notably in a, my youngest daughter's uh, high school right now, uh, where the parents have been up in arms and trying to fight back. So, uh, like me, many parents across the country are finding um, C- CRT to be something that they suddenly have to take arms up against. You at Hillsdale are doing this in a much more organized and much more academic and wonderful way. Um, so we wanted to we wanted to hear about that from you. Yeah, the the 1776 curriculum, which was a sort of follow on project that we'd been working on for a long time in various ways, but took on a new sort of impetus to complete because of CRT's growth and explosion lately. is is basically an endeavor of our K through 12 education office, and we've been putting out a lot for both charter and private and homeschooling. But this is uh, basically a massive new curriculum that's you know 2,395 pages of introductions, lesson plans, primary source documents, 20 units, 85 lessons, just and it's grades K through second, three through fifth, six through eighth, and nine through 12 of government, civics, American history of both the founding and the Civil War. All free units to be downloaded for any school, teacher, school board, family, co-op, homeschool, you name it. Uh, And we we launched it this July to get it in the hands of all these families and schools that are preparing to basically offer some kind of alternative. Now, Hillsdale College, we've been around since 1844, so this, in one sense, we're just doing what we've always done, but we sort of shaped some of the, the, the curriculum with an eye to particularly combating the current errors of the CRT and the 1619 Project. Uh, well, Dr. Mian, as a mother of a fifth grader who uh, I'm homeschooling this year, I was delighted to read about your curriculum and I went ahead and downloaded a bunch of it and it's really excellent and I commend it to all of our, our listeners. And you wrote about this new curriculum in a recent op-ed you wrote on Real Clear Public Affairs and you, you described this. You said, current education fads encourage young people to focus primarily on the evils done by our founders and ancestors, which is a negative approach that just tends to stoke anger and division in the hearts of our young people, rather than filling their hearts with wonder and love, which will make them more capable of fighting for justice and harmony. So tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, so I've been a teacher uh, for 20 years, uh, in, and I've been building curriculums for private schools uh, around the country for a long time. Um, and I've been a U.S. history teacher uh, and a history teacher and a literature teacher. And so I think about these things uh, quite a bit. And one of the things we wanted to do with the 1776 project and why I think a lot of the CRT is so appalling is it doesn't actually frame truth in a way that leads to human flourishing for young people. And principally, that is the 
dissolution at the start of love and wonder, right? We actually need zeal, right? The word study, studiositas, which has to do with zealous love, right, for the truth. You, you kill that when you say, by the way, we're going to look at all of the evils of your ancestors. We're going to look at every bad thing that's ever happened. And that's how we're going to frame the beginning, middle, and end of your study. That literally saps the heart out of children. And so they, they'll actually have worse, just practically worse educational outcomes because they'll be disinterested, but also just harms the deep-rootedness of their love of the truth and their love of humanity and their love of creation and their love of God. And you have to attend to the heart uh, as much as to the mind. That's one of the nice things about the 1776 curriculum that we introduced is we have in addition to all the other things I mentioned, we have this extra section in each unit that says things for the American mind. And then there's a lot of interesting factoids and, and little stories and vignettes. And then we have another part, things for the American heart that actually cause you to love that which has come before you. There's a, I teach at the School of Government on Capitol Hill for Hillsdale. There's a master's degree program here on Capitol Hill and in Washington, D.C. And there is, I teach Cicero. And Cicero says, you're not going to get anyone to do their moral duty unless they're full of gratitude. So part of education is teaching people how to think, but it's also teaching them how to respond to the nature of history, which is a whole bunch of people before us with made in the image and likeness of God, struggling to bring forth goodness and combating, yes, some of us doing evil, right? But the fact that you have anything to study whatsoever is a first blush indication that you should be grateful, thankful for the roads, the laws, right? The settlements, the language, the art, the beauty, the architecture, your parents. That gratitude is the fundamental engine for citizenship and for sanctity. That 1776 curriculum is very much keyed to this and is, is trying to combat those who want to, I think, really put a stake in the, the heart of young children. When you talk about uh, this kind of civic education, it sounds to me like you're, lo- you're talking about love of country, that uh, we love our country the way we love our families. We know that our families are full of flaws, that we have certain people in our families which could behave better, they ought to behave better, but that we, we have tremendous gratitude for the our ancestors that have come before us, all the hard work that they've done, all the love that they've poured into raising their children and that we can have a clear-eyed vision of our family and of our country but, but it's, it's a vision that it's infused with love and with deep respect for all the hard work and, and dedication that has gone before us. Yes, I've actually been um, going around the country over the last few years Actually, prior to 1619, uh, I will uh, toot my own horn and say I saw this coming, and I was trying to give people sort of a framework for thinking about the virtue of patriotism, which is actually one of the moral virtues, right? You have piety is the, the the moral virtue of to your parents and to your ancestors right religion is the one to pater the father father god and patria is the one to your fatherland or your your you know founding fathers your your laws all the fellow citizens who who came before you and it's actually it's under the subset of justice right you actually owe thanks and gratitude and those who sacrificed before you to bring order and government to your life right which is what god does to the entire universe which your parents do to the family and what right your fellow citizens and leaders who came before you did for your country your state your county it's, it's actually a, it's a duty of justice I, yeah i think it's that's very important but even when there's 
really grave evil. There's actually a beautiful video going around right now of a of a, a British man who is abandoned by his parents, and he has Treacher Collins syndrome, which is the loss of any of your cheekbones. So he's got this very disfigured and sort of strikingly frightening at first glance face. But when you talk to him, his beautiful soul comes right through. But he was very angry with his parents for a long time for abandoning him, as you'd imagine. But he actually found his whole self. He came back to himself and healed when he started to realize that he should be thanking his his parents, even though they gave him up for adoption and left him because of his syndrome, that he thanked them for giving him the gift of life and carrying him to term, right? And you're like, well, come on, like, shouldn't we blame them and get mad at them? Yeah, you, you probably could, but for that young man, he needed to be thankful for the, what good they did, even if it was very little. Now, we look back and we see an ocean of good things, right, that have been done, you know, a, a intermixed with evil, but the gratitude has to be in the forefront so that you can properly appraise the wrong done in a way that doesn't destroy the soul. Mm-hmm. And you say that the curriculum does not shy away from teaching, you know, the evils of our past as a country, but it introduces them in a way that's more honest and humane. And I love the analogy that you give that a polluted river is not well understood unless one first sees a healthy, clean one. I thought that was a great analogy. So so tell us, Dr. Meehan, tell our listeners, please, how can they access this new curriculum that is being offered for free to all? So you can just go to K-12 that's letter K and the number 12, k12.hillsdale.edu. And there's a curriculum drop-down menu that has all of the various parts of the Hillsdale 1776 curriculum. If you can't remember that, you can always just go to the Hillsdale website and there's a bunch of links there that you can find. But k12.hillsdale.edu is where that is. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie here alongside my TCA colleague and co-host Maureen Ferguson, and we're chatting with Dr. Matthew Meehan. He's the Director of Academic Programs for Washington, D.C. for Hillsdale College. He's also an acclaimed children's author. And Dr. Meehan has written a most delightful brand new children's book called The Handsome Little Signet. And the Wall Street Journal Children's Book Reviewer has called this a big hearted picture book that celebrates tender family attachment. Tell us about your book, Dr. Meehan. So it's a retelling of Hans Christian Andersen's The Ugly Duckling, but kind of inverted for the modern day. Instead of the ugly duckling, it's the handsome little signet, a baby swan. Instead of not knowing where he's coming from and has to find his family, he actually knows his family, but then sort of the pressures and distractions of the world cause him to forget what he is and want to be something else. It seemed like a really beautiful thing to do to set uh, this little story of coming of age for a baby swan in Central Park in Manhattan and it's also just, I think, very timely because young children today are struggling with trying to figure out who they are. And there's a lot of, I'd say, uh, false prophets of identity to, who are trying to convince them to be something they're not. So it's a it's a morality play in a certain sense, but beautifully illustrated with watercolors by my good friend John Folly. Dr. Meehan, I feel like you're bucking a trend here with children's books, children's movies, children's entertainment of all sorts, because children uh, in general are being fed on a steady diet of uh, rebellion, finding your own true self, turning their backs on tradition and unchosen obligations uh, that their families have imposed on them. And I think that's something I see constantly 
constantly. And every time yeah. I'm at a cartoon or I, or I pick up a children's book, it always seems to have the same theme. But uh, your book is it's a it's a morality tale like these other ones. These are all morality tales for children. But yours is is old fashioned and it and it says to the child, yes, these are your obligations of being part of a family, and it's and it's what will keep you safe and secure and and loved and and lead you down the right paths in life. There's a line that gets repeated by the father, uh, stay close to your mother, stay close to me. Uh, and the signet says, well, where would I go? Uh, you know, I love you. I'm not going to go anywhere. And the father sort of knowingly says, well, good, good. But uh, little signet, the swan's heart can wander where the swan can never go. And in the end, the the end of the book, and now this is an adult audience, so I can give it away. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they go their separate ways, but flying, they're unified. But the young signet is now grown up and is flying away to go find a mate himself and leaving Central Park. So there's freedom, but that freedom comes through a certain kind of unity of heart and knowing what you are. And it takes some time for the little signet to figure that out. But yeah, it bucks the trend in that regard that that actually following the sort of advice and counsel of your parents uh, and your own nature, what God has given you, are ways to find freedom and fulfillment. And that's the very cross, uh, running against the cross purposes with today's anti-cultural uh, messaging, I think. Another one that, that is, I think, sort of surprising in some ways is I really wanted the image of a strong father and a strong mother. Very often the parents are doddering fools or the mother's working hard and she's a scold and the dad is little better than a kind of Labrador retriever following his basis fashions toward, you know, beer or barbecue. <laughs> yes. Um, Poor dad. And I wanted... Yeah, right. Exactly. But 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 what happens to me just personally, and I think to any, you know, sort of normal red blooded father is you see a bunch of bad images of fatherhood and you're like, I'm doing OK. Oh. Right? But, <laughs> the bar, but the bar do, is set very you, low. <laughs> yeah, but if you start, if you show the image of this strong, thoughtful, patient, very careful father. I wanted that kind of image where even the parents are like, boy, I could be a little more discerning about how I raise my children and, you know, what I teach them and how I guide them and how patient I am and thoughtful I am about their guidance. So I actually wanted to put, I call it bad dad syndrome. It's everywhere when you start to see it. It's almost, there's an allergic reaction to showing a strong father mm-hmm. who can who can guide their children in a thoughtful way. And, and uh, that's something I really wanted. And, and, a, and a mother who's super confident, even when things go wrong, she's just very calm and very, very uh, gets things done. Give us a little insight into your your first children's book, Dr. Meehan's, oh, I'm going to mix up the title, Mildly... Oh, don't worry, Mr. Mythical, I'm Mr. Meehan's, yeah, Mr. Meehan's Mildly Amusing Mythical Mammals, <laughs> uh, M5, or Meehan's Mammals is easier. But yeah, that... that book um, took many years to write. It's a much more elaborate book for older readers, you know, more closer to sort of grades uh, three through seven or eight, but it also has an upper register for adults. And there's letter blocks for kids. I actually, that one, I, the first book I wanted to do was a family book. So targeted in the sort of middle reader age, but there's little things for little people, there's middle things for middle people, and there's big things for big people, and a big glossary in the back that introduces kids to the Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman tradition. So very ambitious, kind of my first big mega book. But it's essentially a medieval bestiary, a hypothetical alphabetical of one mythical beast poem for each letter of the alphabet. So, And it features two characters, the Dally and the Blug, who go on a little journey. The Dally encounters the evil of sadness, uh, and through the friendship with his bouncy friend, the Blug, um, 
they go deeper and deeper into what it means to be a human by first looking at what it means to be a mammal. Wow, I have to get a copy of that, Dr. Mian. That sounds fabulous. I love that you call it the evil of sadness. I always think that sadness is an ally of the enemy, and it's so powerful. I wanted to be, uh, I wanted the bad guy to be sadness, and it's this, it's a a blind ape who's got empty sockets, uh, but he still weeps, and he claims he can see that the whole world does not love him, but he's blind. Oh, wow. Uh, And he sings this, this sad song that the narrator says oh Dally don't listen to that sad song but he does uh, and then have to sort of overcome that sadness and eventually comes to the letter Z creature which is the Z lion which is zeal and ion together which is Plato's account of beauty and zeal which is the the, one of the products of God's love sort of grace and nature together I'll tell you this I've never said this in before but he's modeled after a great big plump Saint uh, Thomas Aquinas the big white <laughs> creature uh, that sounds wonderful, Dr. Lays out, Yeah, the poem lays out all the effects of God's love from the Summa in a virtue, in children's verse, very very obliquely and playfully. Oh my gosh, I definitely am buying this because I've, I've, I don't think my mind's broad or deep enough for the actual Summa. <laughs> so I'm going to go with the cartoon version. <laughs> that. It sounds like you, you covered all the bases. So thank you so much, Dr. Mian. And uh, if people want to learn about your books, they can go to tanbooks.com. And if they want to know more about your wonderful 1776 curriculum for K-12. through Directly to k12.hillsdale.edu. Oh, perfect. Well, thank you very much for your time. And thank you for all the wonderful work that you're doing, not, not less for helping us educate our children, Dr. Mian. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. It's one of the saddest dialogues in the Gospel. Repeating what he said in last week's Gospel, Jesus turned to the apostles and reiterated, The Son of Man is to be handed over to men, and they will kill him, and three days after his death, the Son of Man will rise. Yet rather than consoling him, the apostles, his friends, start arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Whenever Jesus spoke about his upcoming crucifixion, it always seemed to bring out the worst in the disciples. We saw last week when Jesus told him about it for the first time, St. Peter took him aside and tried to rebuke him. On a third occasion, John and James's mother approached and immediately asked Jesus to appoint her two sons to the chief position in his messianic reign. If there were ever any greater illustration of the evil of what St. James calls selfish ambition, this is it. To get a sense of the ugliness of the apostles jockeying for position, imagine that your dad came to you and told you that the doctor had given him just two weeks to live, and instead of consoling him, you immediately shifted your attention to who would get the house or the car, or to ask him before it would be too late to intercede to get you a promotion at work. That's what was happening in these scenes. It's sad and frankly ridiculous. But Jesus never tried to eliminate his followers' ambition, but to purify it and direct it toward true greatness. He told them the path, which would be his path, 
was the path of cruciform love. If anyone wishes to be first, he shall be the last of all and the servant of all, Jesus says. To be great, we must excel in loving service. To illustrate exactly what he was describing, lest we interpret it according to our comforts, Jesus took a child and said, Whoever receives one such child as this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. An infant is someone who cannot will to reward us, with whom we cannot engage in a quid pro quo. Little child is not even able to thank us for changing his diapers, feeding him, clothing him, or more. While it's true that whenever we love, we receive more than we give, and that those who love children receive so many blessings in return, Jesus' point is that we need to love those who cannot reward us. That's the type of service we're called to give. That's the kind of ambition to which we're supposed to aspire. Sometimes in the church, people are trained to regard all ambition and aspirations of greatness almost as sinful violations of humility, as if every ambition is what St. James calls selfish. But there's a huge difference between a passion for self-aggrandizement, an ego-indulging hunger for riches, honor, and power, a desire not just to be the best, but to be acknowledged as the best, and a holy zeal for the things of God and His kingdom. St. Paul told us in his first letter to the Corinthians, Strive eagerly for the greatest spiritual gifts, and said that they were not things like prophetic gifts, faith to move mountains, heroic feats of enduring suffering, but faith, hope, and especially a charity that's patient, kind, not arrogant or rude. We think about how ambition worked in the life of St. Ignatius Loyola, the 500th anniversary of whose conversion we celebrate this year. Prior to the Battle of Pamplona, where he had his leg shattered by a cannonball. He vainly sought worldly honor on the battlefield and in royal courts. After convalescing for many months, however, studying the life of Christ and reading the lives of the saints, he was filled with a sacred ambition and asked, Why can't I do what Dominic or Francis have done? In the Gospel, Jesus spoke several times about true greatness and described the characteristics of genuine Christian greatness. Let's examine five things he wants us to become truly great in. First, Jesus wants us to be great in faith. He praised the Syrophoenician mother and the Roman centurion for their great faith and longed that in Israel all would emulate it. Second, Jesus wants us to be great in humility. In response to the disciples' question, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a child over and said, Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. To be great in humility is not contradictory, just paradoxical. Just like a child is totally dependent on his or her appearance, so Jesus wants us to become great in our filial dependence on all that God his Father wants to give. The temptation for us is to think we don't need God, that we're self-sufficient. We remember that the chief priest of the prodigal son was not what he did with the prostitutes. It was to treat his father basically as if he were already dead, to get the inheritance now forgetting that a far more important treasure than half the father's wealth was in the relationship with his father. Jesus indicates for us that the path to greatness is to become great in recognizing our need for and receiving with gratitude all God wants to give. Third, Jesus wants us to be ambitious in our total imitation of his self-sacrificial love. Whoever would be first among you must be the servant of all, he tells us today. In St. Matthew's version, He continues, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus wants us to receive his grace to grow in the desire to give our life to rescue others from slavery and death. Fourth, Jesus wants us to be ambitious to be holy. 
He tells us in the gospel, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, echoing the prophet's call for us to be holy as the Lord our God is holy, merciful as our father is merciful, so that we might fully become the image and likeness of the God who created us. Jesus wants us to be great in living by his truths and passing them on to others. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, whoever keeps these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He wants us to excel in sharing the faith by our example and words. We think of great missionaries like St. Paul and St. Francis Xavier, the North American martyrs and others. We think about religious sisters who taught so selfishly generations of Catholic school students, instilling within them the knowledge and love of God. We think about so many lay catechists who patiently pass on the faith to children, teens, and adults. We think about parents, grandparents, and godparents who make it their priority to pass on the faith. We think about truly apostolic friends who seek to share with those they care about the faith they care about the most. We can ask whether we have the ambition truly to become great in faith rather than remain mediocre, to become great in humility rather than thinking ourselves too great on our own or too small despite God's abundant grace, to become great in self-sacrificial love or to remain average, to be great in passing on our love for Jesus rather than keeping this treasure to ourselves. The reality is just like the apostles. Jesus has told us over and again that he will be betrayed, mocked, tortured, and ignominiously crucified and raised on the third day. It was ugly for them, in anticipation of what he would endure, for them to elbow each other for worldly advancement, ignoring the reality and meaning of his passion, death, and resurrection. I would argue, however, knowing what Jesus has endured for us in our salvation, that it is much uglier for us now to remain only at the level of worldly desire. The Son of Man became one of us, not so that we might ambitiously seek the things of this world while just doing the minimum of coming to Mass, supporting the Church, and not committing mortal sins. Please. He died and rose so that we might live new lives in this world, but not of this world seeking first the kingdom of God and his holiness and recognizing that everything else of true value will be given to us besides. The great way we recalibrate our ambitions is to live a truly Eucharistic life. In the Holy Eucharist, Jesus goes beyond what he did in Calvary. He humbles himself so much as to become our very spiritual nourishment, seeking to transform us in the inside so that with him we may give our body, blood, sweat, tears, all we have and are out of love for the Father and for others. When we seek what Jesus gives and teaches us in the Eucharist, when we receive him as he deserves and desires to be received, God can make us great. St. John Vianney once lamented that if his parishioners received Holy Communion more often and more deeply, they would become saints. The Eucharist is where we learn to receive Jesus with love and in receiving him to recognize and receive him in children and everyone else he sends us. The sacrament of love teaches us how to love. So we prepare for Sunday Mass and get ready to receive the fruits of Jesus' betrayal, suffering, death, and resurrection. Let us ask the Lord for the grace to be filled with a desire for what really matters, and for all the help he knows we need to act on that holy ambition. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 